Psalm 51, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Before we begin our study, I want to return just for a brief moment, though, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the conviction of sin led to the confession of sin. It led to the cleansing of sin. And then there's comfort that's listed in verse 24. Before we begin, I I just want to remind you that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he, that is David, called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. And in the Hebrew, the name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord or accepted by the Lord. And so David wrote Psalm 51. I'm going to read the psalm, but we're going to be focusing on the first six verses. And we're going to actually begin reading Psalm 51 at the very top. There is usually an introduction that's given. It says a psalm of penitence. Really, it's a psalm of repentance. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And then Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. 
Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. For the next three studies, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, and the Psalm's themes include brokenness and blessing. When we were worshiping the Lord and Isaac asked you to bring to your heart or bring to your remembrance some of the things that you are grateful for, I'm hoping that one of the things you were grateful for was his grace. His mercy, His forgiveness, the redemption that we have in in Christ because of His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. You get to go to heaven instead of hell. You get to walk in unhindered freedom and fellowship with Him. Today, we're going to be looking at the confession of a broken man in verses 1 through 6. Next, we're going to examine the cleansing of a broken heart in verses 7 through 12. And then the psalm will focus on the consecration of a broken man. So we'll move from confession to cleansing to consecration. Now remember, David wrote this psalm after his fiasco with Bathsheba, after all of the things that we looked at in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember the introduction to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It doesn't get any more raw and honest than that. This is his signed confession made open and available to everyone. You know what it would be like? Imagine that someone does something terrible and the confession is posted on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, but then it's a song and it's on the top. Well, I'm too old. They don't have top 40 anymore. Let's just say it gets posted on iTunes and it has 6 billion hits. Everybody tunes in to David's great hit. That's what's happening. It is public. It is notorious. I got to tell you something. I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad that the canon of scripture is closed. When we were praying back, uh, one of the, the guys said, you know, I'm so glad that this information is contained in the Bible. And I said, you know, this is one of the most surprising proofs of both the legitimacy, the authenticity of the Bible. This isn't the product of a human imagination because a human being would say, hey, let's spin this in a different direction. It's really important that we not dissolve people's heroes. But the Bible is very clear. It shows the people in the Bible, warts and all. The Bible never hides the secret sins. It it never hides the faults. It never hides the pride, the lust, the failure. All of the things that we want to hide in our leaders. In those people who we have great trust and confidence You know, I've met heroes, real men and women 
who have done extraordinary deeds. Clearly, I'm no hero. I have a very public ministry. People hear me on the radio. They hear me in conferences. They hear me at church. But when they're hearing me, they don't get to see me in the private life, in the failed life. My failures as a Christian, my failures as a husband, my failures as a father, my failures as a pastor, my private failures. If my private failures became public property, I suspect that no one would come to this church. And certainly no one would listen to this Bible study. It was Dr. F.B. Meyer who wrote to a friend just a few weeks before his death the following note. He wrote, quote, I am 82 and I'm in a nursing home. And I want to tell you what the Spirit of God has been showing me lately. That I've acquired a reputation for sanctity from my books. This may grow upon me. It makes me want to creep into heaven unnoticed. Why would he say such a thing? Because he knew about the danger of pride. He knew about the false expectations and the danger of reputation. Because when a person writes such wonderful things, such beautiful things, such spiritual things, there is this sense of expectation. And what F.B. Meyer was saying, I'm sad to... I'm afraid to crawl into heaven because some people might realize that I didn't live up to the writings that I wrote. That's what he's saying. He knew that the expectation of sanctity came with with the expectation of sanctity comes the inevitable disappointment that human beings are are clay. They're, They're not just clay, they're marred clay. David clearly for most people, is perhaps the best-loved leader in the Bible. And I think it's not a mistake that his other titles, when when I was speaking of Jesus, Jesus' favorite title of himself was the Son of Man, but his second favorite title for himself was the Son of David. Now, with so many titles to choose from, Almighty, Beloved, Bread of life, image of the invisible God, Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords. You would think, "Mm, after kind of recording 1 Samuel chapter 12, let's go with one of those titles. Why would you want to associate your name with David? Why not edit this whole sad, wicked, terrible thing? Because the example of David isn't limited by songs and success. David's feelings and failures are in the Bible for a reason. It's so that you could have hope. Now, one of the very first lessons we should glean about David's failure is our need for brokenness. You know, we sing the song, brokenness, brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. And perhaps the first and greatest lesson from this simple instruction to this psalm is that need. And you have to understand something. You may not get this, but I need to make it clear to you. David was an absolute danger to the world apart from God. And if you're honest with yourself, so are you. You are absolutely a dangerous person apart from God. Apart from Christ, 
apart from his grace and his, and his mercy. That's the idea. The man after God's heart was also a man subject to temptation and subject to sin. And David's sin is intensified because of the role and position and David's miserable handling of his sin. Now, you know, he's the king. He could pursue God's heart. He could pursue God's people. Or he could pursue his own heart and consume the people. And that's the danger of leadership. Instead of service to the people that God has entrusted you with, you see them as an object that you can consume. The shepherd shepherds the sheep. The shepherd who fleeces the flock and eats the sheep loses his or her position. That's the idea. David remembers about 50 years old when he wrote this psalm. He had sat on Israel's throne for 20 years. He had distinguished himself as a warrior and as a judge, as a brilliant and gifted artist, a faithful shepherd, a leader of the people. Way before Charles Stanley talked about Passion for God and compassion for people. David lived it out. And I think we would be wrong. If we painted David as a sexual predator and as an evil person. But we would also be wrong. If we neglected to remember that David had a moment in his life. When he acted like a sexual predator. And he acted like an evil person. Many years ago, I remember hearing the sobs of a husband who had drowned, whose wife had drowned their five children. And he was trying to make sense of it all. And the woman he married, the woman who conceived these children, put them inside a bathtub and drowned them. You might have remembered hearing the story of Andrea Yates. What you may not be familiar with is her husband, Rusty Yates. He was an engineer at NASA when his wife called and she said, you need to come home. And he said, what's wrong? And she said, it's time. I did it. It's the children. And a chill went through her husband's spine. Andrea, which one? And she said, all of them. Months later, months later, after the full facts of the investigation came out, at 8.30 in the morning, she was feeding her children cereal. And Rusty left for work. And at 9 o'clock, when she knew that he was gone, she took the six-month-old baby and placed the baby in the bathroom. And then from the next youngest all the way to the oldest, one by one, she, she filled the bathtub with water. She took one child and she strangled the child under the bathtub until the, the child drowned. And she took the body of the child, put it on the, the, the child's bed, and then put a sheet. And she proceeded to do this time after time after time while the six-month-old baby is lying on the bassinet witnessing all of this stuff. And then finally she comes to the oldest child and the oldest child comes in, realizes what 
what's happened, but tries to escape. The mother brings him and, and captures him and brings him back to the bathtub, but he's a little bit stronger than the rest. He's a little bit more slippery. It's difficult to keep him under the tub. And in the midst of the vomit and in the midst of the urine and in the midst of, the, of all of the stuff of, that's taking place in the bathtub, she pushes his head underneath the water. He comes back up for breath. The last thing that he said to his mother was, I'm sorry. And then she drowned him. And then she placed him on the bed. And when the Houston police officers asked her, why did you do this? Were you angry with the children? She said, no. Why did you do this? And she said, I'm a bad mother. And I knew that I needed to be punished. You see, after that, the world was shocked when David came out and he supported his wife and he began to speak about her mental and emotional distress. And, and he said something so stunned that it was almost unbelievable. She said, you know, Andrea was basically a good mother and a decent mother except for this one incident. And that's the same shock that most of us get when we read the Bible's incident of David. How do you do this? How do you write psalms? How do you slay giants? How do you live in, in, in such a world where then you find yourself in a circumstance of murder and adultery? But you have to be careful because unguarded and weak, we are all capable of the most horrible of sin. God had blessed David and God had blessed his leadership, but God's blessings weren't supposed to be misconstrued as an opportunity to do evil or to embrace wickedness. And God never gave David permission to multiply wives or concubines. I've repeated Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 17 over and over to you. When you enter the land which the Lord your God will give you, when you possess it and live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your countrymen you shall set a king over yourselves you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who's not your countrymen moreover he shall not multiply horses for himself he shall not cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never again return that way neither shall he multiply wives for himself lest his heart Turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. But you know what David did? He ignored the Bible. He ignored it. He may have thought, well, you know what? Maybe I'm the exception to the rule. He, he thought God would give him a free pass because of his excellence, because of all the songs that he wrote, because of his spiritual exploits. But the Bible said, David, don't do it, lest your heart be turned away. And David's heart did turn away. And for a brief, tragic moment, David's heart turned from the Lord and he turned to the object of his lust and desire, the forbidden fruit of another man's wife. And David, think about this, he was faithful in most of the scripture, 
But how disobedient do you have to be before it seems to undo all that you have done? You know, we can't just simply look at murder and adultery like a dark spot on a white sheet. I want you to note something. And we've already talked about it. Remember in 2 Samuel that increasing wives and concubines didn't result in an increase in satisfaction. And when you begin to think about the limits or the prohibitions that the Bible gives you, those limits and those prohibitions aren't there in order to make your life miserable, but to make your life livable. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, they could do whatever they wanted. Think about it. They could smoke medical marijuana till they were blue in the face. The Lord didn't say, don't smoke marijuana. He said, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. There was only one prohibition. The one thing, just one thing. There wasn't ten things. There wasn't a hundred things that they couldn't do. There was only one thing. And so the confession of a broken man begins with the need for pardon. Look at what it says in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Guilty people need grace. Mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. I know what some of you are thinking. Even as you think about Andrea Yates, and now you think about David, and you go, you don't deserve mercy. You deserve judgment. And that's exactly right. That's what sinners deserve. They deserve judgment. But David cries out for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. And look, the basis of the mercy isn't according to your expectations or your judgment or your sense of right or your sense of wrong. It's according to his loving kindness. John Phillips writes, David had two great sobs. What were those sobs? His sobs are, Lord, here's how the confession begins. I am very sinful. And I am very sorry. Oh, it's easy for you to say that you're sinful and that you're sorry. But David needed pardon. He needed a specific kind of pardon. He needed a pardon that was rooted in God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness. And David had committed two, not just one, two capital crimes. Murder and adultery. He deserved to die. His sin is inexcusable. Not only has David sinned against God, but he sinned against God in the worst day. But look at the reoccurring words. This is my sin. Have mercy on me. Wash me. Cleanse me of my transgressions. And this becomes the important part of the confession of a broken man because a broken person doesn't blame someone else for their sin. David doesn't blame his parents. He doesn't blame the medication. He doesn't blame the trauma of the those who treated him badly. He doesn't, he doesn't claim a sexual addiction. He doesn't blame society. And you need to understand something. He doesn't even blame his own fallen nature. Well, nobody's perfect. You can agree with that, can't you? Nobody's perfect. 
But he doesn't do that. Brokenness begins with the need for pardon. But how do you excuse the inexcusable? How do you find forgiveness from the guilt and the shame and the pain and the injury? Let me be very clear here. The only way to get rid of guilt and sin is to acknowledge what you've done. To take full responsibility for it. To seek God's forgiveness. To accept the consequences. We can't keep hiding or covering it up or pushing it away. And you see, unconfessed sin results in continued guilt. That's the point. Biblical brokenness, biblical confession, biblical repentance, God's forgiveness in Christ. This becomes the key concept. This is perhaps the most important concept in all of the Bible that Christ is the only answer to guilt. Now I want you to just think about this for just a moment. David's answer to guilt lies in the promise that God had given to him, not in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but earlier when God told David that someone from his own loins, from his own seed, from his own family would occupy a throne that would last forever. The only thing that is going to provide a satisfying solution to the problem of guilt is going to be David's son. It's going to be the Messiah. Biblical repentance, God's forgiveness, in humility, accepting the provision of God in Christ. You know, we live in a world of whole things, not broken things. And we become shocked and surprised when we find out that the Bible is filled with broken things that God loves. Have you ever done a serious study of broken things in the Bible? What is brokenness? My friend Damian Kyle, who's the pastor of of Calvary Chapel in um, Modesto, he writes, brokenness is simply my will being broken to God's will. It's my ways being broken to his ways. I like that. In the Bible, God often receives glory, not from whole things, but broken things. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 33, when, when... Jacob is at the river Jabbok and he has his wife Rachel and his wife Leah. He has the donkeys, the goats, the chickens, whatever it is that he has. And he's standing at the river Jabbok. His brother Esau's on the other side of the river. He's heard that the news has come and he sends the, the donkeys and the camels and the goats and the chickens. And then he sends the, across the river the wife he's not particularly fond of. And then he finally actually sends the wife that he is fond of. And the only thing that's left on the other side of the river is himself. And he wrestles with an angel. He is sacrificed. He's given up everything. And there's only one thing left. His own pride and his own will. And he wrestles with an angel. And the fight ends with Jacob's hip out of socket. But the moment that his hip breaks... 
he receives a blessing from God. God blesses him. Sometimes God will break our flesh in order to break our will. The Bible says that Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. <laughs> My friend Cy Rogers, who grew up, if you will, in a homosexual community, who lived as a woman for two years as he was preparing to get a transvestite operation, says, limp? It's amazing that I can walk at all. And you make fun of me because I walk with a limp? Jacob will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, you'll remember Jesus took loaves and he broke them and blessed them. And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples began to distribute them to the hungry. The bread became a type of that which feeds the hungry and satisfies the soul, but it's broken and blessed first. And again, it becomes a type of the word of God and even of the person of Christ. And remember in Mark chapter 14, the story of the woman who comes to Simon the leper's living room, a woman, she comes with an alabaster box, she pours the ointment on Jesus' head, she proceeds to wash his feet with her tears. The box was made of alabaster and it was sealed with wax and it says, and she broke it. And the ointment, which was normally used for funeral services to mask the odor of death, began to fill the house with the fragrance of beauty. In Jeremiah, the potter goes down to the potter's house and there he finds broken shards and broken vessels and marred clay. And in the midst of the brokenness, the potter puts together pot that's appropriate. You see, we as Christians, we begin our walk in brokenness. We are born broken. We are born again broken. We can't be born any other way. In Matthew 21, verse 44, it says, and whoever falls on the stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders in the face of overwhelming evidence that he was the Messiah. The religious leaders rejected his authority. They rejected his miracles. They rejected his message. They refused to be broken. Do you remember when the Holy Spirit did that job of confrontation in your life? Do you remember when your lost and hopeless condition became abundantly aware in your thinking? Do you remember the day that you got saved? Do you remember the weight of your sin? Do you remember the obstacle, the frustration of the sum and the substance of your rebellion and disobedience? And all of a sudden, that profound sense of sin and that profound sense of guilt... Do you remember how you deserved death and judgment? And then all of a sudden you heard the story of Jesus. How he offered love and forgiveness. Hope. You know, it wasn't the threat of hell 
that convinced me to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. It was the possibility that someone as wicked and sinful and broken as myself could possibly get hope. And you know what's really interesting? When your pride is broken, when your self-righteousness is gone, when your boasting is silenced, when there is a crack in your heart and that crack begins to break and as your heart begins to break, there's just enough room to let Jesus in. We're born again. We're broken. But the Bible says that we continue our lives in a constant process of, of, of breaking. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Jesus? By grace, through faith, in brokenness and humility. And so your walk continues in faith, by grace, through humility. And David uses three great words for sin. His sin was a transgression. Look what it says in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Do you know what a transgression is? A transgression is not just simply doing what's wrong. It isn't doing something wrong accidentally. It's not doing something wrong sort of like you slipped up and fell. This is a willful, conscious, deliberate rebellion. A transgression is a willful, a willful crossing of the line. This is, a, this is knowing where the line is. This means you stand up with your eyes open and you cross the line. But you did this on purpose. David did it on purpose. You knew it was wrong. Yes. 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 This is a willful rebellion. This is a willful crossing of the line. This is a willful ignoring of God's command. Psalm 51 verse 2. Look what it says. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's the second word. The first word, a willful rebellion. Cleanse me from my sin. Note, David then uses the word iniquity. Iniquity is different from that. It's a revelation of the perversion and the corruption of his own stinking heart. In other words, when he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, he's talking about the perversion and the corruption. He's talking about the degradation. He's talking about the wickedness of his own heart. And sin, of course, is a missing of the mark. It's a stumbling a shortcoming and he confesses I am very sinful so he is confessing all of the things not that he did accidentally but that he did on purpose and the absolute stinking corruption that's inside of his heart and his failure to meet even the minimal standards. David peers deep into his heart and his soul. And he, as he peers deep into the heart of his soul. He begins to read the record of his life. And as he reads the record of his life. He hates 
what he sees. Because it is so bad, so wrong. David sees a story so foul, so evil, so wicked that he pleads with God to blot it out. He can't undo the past. The record is what the record is. What's done is done. What's written is written. Only God could pour ink over the tragic record and blot it out. But in our age of high-tech electronic and digital recordings, I guess we need to use a different metaphor. You know, at the FBI, they're able to literally excavate hard drives and stuff that you thought when you hit the delete button, it's still there! Now, I have no idea. When I hit the delete button, it's gone. And from my perspective, it's gone forever. But if you get the right tech, they can drudge it up and they can revive whatever the foul information was. Only God, only God can hit the delete button in such a way and erase the acid etching on the soul's hard drive. Wash me thoroughly, David says. Do you know why he says wash me thoroughly? Because he sees his soiled soul like a garment that has been dragged through the mud. Have you ever heard that expression? Why do you have to drag this through the mud? That's exactly what's happening. When something was drugged through the mud, it, you could get it so dirt that it was that even the fibers themselves were dirty. One Bible writer says, often clothes were cleaned in this day in olden times as they were in developing countries even today. The dirt in David's life was so ingrained that no light soaking or rinsing would do. When I was in India, I remember at the side of a river seeing a woman with her laundry. She placed it on a rock and she began to beat the laundry with a rock and she would beat it and beat that laundry that's what David is saying I need to be washed in such a way that I can be thoroughly cleansed cleanse me he writes look closely at that cleanse me this is a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe a leper diseased unclean, defiled, incurable. When that leper was declared cured or cleaned, this is the Hebrew word that you would use to describe it. It is a miraculous cleansing brought out by a supernatural source. Now some Bible writers have even gone so far as to suggest that David may have been smitten with leprosy, but I think it is a metaphor Leprosy becomes a type and a picture of sin that is so thorough and so complete that it will eventually result in the death of the host. And look at verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Do you understand what that means? David is haunted by his evil actions. The ghost of Uriah follows him wherever he goes. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm not talking about, ooh, 
and he's literally. But the deed itself follows him wherever he goes. The ghost follows him wherever he goes. For David, it's Uriah. But who or what follows you? What is it that's following you? What is it that's lurking and following you and reminding you over and over and over again about your guilty past? David sees his sin everywhere. Wherever he looks, he sees his sin. He looks into the sad, tragic eyes of Bathsheba and he sees his sin. In the cynical stare of Joab, he sees his sin. In the uneasy movements of his servants, he sees his sin. In the bitter, angry looks of his children, he sees his sin. It haunts him every moment of every day. Of every month. And in verse 4. He says against you and you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak. And blameless when you judge. You see. Broken people. Broken people. Are horrified by their sin. That's one, of the reasons, that's one of the ways that you can tell that a person is in fact. It isn't just simply that they're willing to confess their sin. It isn't willing that they're, they're willing to come clean. It isn't just simply that they're willing to see their sin the way God sees their sin. Because once you do see your sin the way God sees it, you become horrified by it. Against you and you only have I sinned, David writes. What? What? What about the dead child? What about the dead husband? What about Bathsheba? What about her family? What about his other wives and children? What about the nation of Israel? What about Ahithophel, his trusted friend and advisor, and Bathsheba's grandfather? How can you be so dismissive of everyone else that it hurt? Because David understands something. He understands that sin takes its toll on everyone around us. That it's real. Its consequences are horrible. But the injustice and the indignity and the wickedness is primarily against God. In what way? David says, I have sinned before heaven and in your sight. Remember when Jesus, David's David's future famous son, gives the story of the prodigal son who runs away from his father, who spoils takes the spoils of his inheritance and he spends it on himself and he finds himself in a pig pen and and he comes to his senses and he says, I've sinned before heaven in your sight, the prodigal son says to his, his father. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Sin in its ultimate sense is rebellion against God. And because sin is ultimately against God, the enormity and the tragedy is in direct proportion to the person who's offended. I use this illustration on my radio program all the time. I said, imagine you were angry with me and you decided you're going to slap me. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to be mad. Yeah, true. What if you decide to slap the governor of the state of Colorado? What do you suppose is going to happen? You could get arrested. What if you decide to attack the President of the United States? You could get shot. 
in direct proportion to the office and the dignity of the person who occupies that offense, all of a sudden the penalty begins to accelerate. What should be the penalty if you offend an eternal God, a holy God, a righteous God, a self-existent being? What should be the punishment? It should be an eternal punishment. That's the idea. All human transgressions become petty and small and insignificant in light of a sin against God who is holy and righteous. Broken people experience sorrow, but they also experience not just simple regret, but repentance against you. And you only have I sinned. In what way is David sorry? Is he sorry like Judas? Is he sorry like Herod? Is he sorry like Esau or Saul? They all said that they were sorry, but they were sorry because they were discovered. They were sorry because they were exposed. They were sorry because they knew what would happen as a result of their sin. David was sorry for the sin itself, for the rebellion and the injury to God the God that he had grown to love and the God that he had grown to have fellowship with and relationship with and intimate interactions with. And now David reveals that human beings are born in sin and blinded by sin. And in Psalm 51.5 it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my, my mother conceived me. Now you got to understand something. People in paganism, people in the new age, they're fond of saying that there's this divine spark, the God within you, the divinity in each human being, the kind of divinity that Oprah talks about. There's a little spark of divinity in each and every one of us. But the Bible tells us the opposite is true. The Bible speaks of the sin in you. Skeptics and agnostics hate this verse. And even some so-called Christian teachers must hate verse 5 if their theology is any indication of what they really believe. The source of sin is, is in our soul, not in our surrounding. Note that. The source of sin clearly isn't simply in our surrounding, it's in our soul. David isn't making a theological excuse. He isn't saying the devil made me do it, or even that sin made me do it. I have to sin because I'm a sinner, but rather he's a sinner by birth and he's a sinner by choice. Here's what ultimately is happening in this verse. David is asking God to take into consideration before passing final judgment upon him this reality. And God does take it into consideration. And so he devises a plan that David's son is going to become David's savior. That David's son is going to be born sinless. And David's son is going to live the life that David could never live. And David's son is going to be perfect in holiness and righteousness. And David's son is going to take the sum and the substance of David's sin. 
In Psalm 51, 6, look what he says. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts. You will make me to know wisdom. David knew the truth about the human heart. We're blinded by sin. And all we need as proof is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And sin defiles and makes us deaf and sin disgraces and then it damages and then it dooms the sinner. And he says, you desire truth in the inward part. Do you understand what he's saying? It isn't just simply coming clean with the people that he's injured. But it's coming clean with himself. All of us are capable of lying to each other quite well. But how do we explain the person who continues to lie to himself or to lie to herself? Hoping that the lie will make the guilt go away or make the shame go away or make the pain go away. William MacDonald wrote, It's interesting to observe concerning the Lord that he has the unique ability to take something even more valuable by breaking it. Someone once said, usually when something is broken, its value declines or it disappears altogether. Broken dishes, broken bottles, broken mirrors are generally scrapped. Even a crack in furniture or tear in cloth greatly reduces its resale value. But it isn't that way in the spiritual realm. God puts a premium on broken things. Especially... Unbroken people, unquote. You know, there are very few things in life that you can improve by breaking them. But sinners and saints, sinners and saints are the things that can be broken that become more valuable. In Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2, it says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. Think about what what God told Isaiah. Heaven is my throne Earth is my footstool in the world of men. In order to find God, you've got to get higher and higher and higher. But God says, it's not getting higher and higher and higher where you find me. It's when you get lower and lower and lower. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such. Do you understand what's happening in the psalm? Brokenness becomes an invitation. And the invitation is it invites God's compassion. It invites God's mercy. It invites God's grace. It invites God's power. You know, I heard the story of a preacher who left Philadelphia to go out west 
As a kid growing up, he loved cowboys and he loved horses and he loved the wild, wild west. And he, he left and he went out west and he began to preach the gospel and he would bring the gospel to the cowboys. And these are rough and tough and wild men. But he had a powerful ministry and he loved them and he gave them the gospel, but they didn't have a whole lot to pay him. And he went back to Philadelphia and the cowboys got together and they said, you know, that preacher came out and told us about Jesus. Let's do something nice for him. And so they caught a Mustang and they put it on a, on a, on a, on a train and they sent it back to Philadelphia. But it was wild and unbroken. And the preacher said, this horse is no good to me. I can't use this horse. And so they sent the horse back, and one of the cowboys broke the horse, but only on the left side. He goes, now, preacher, you got to mount this horse on the left side, because if you mount the horse on the right side, he's going to kill you. And the preacher said, I have a wife and kids. A horse that isn't broken on both sides is no good to me. And it becomes a perfect illustration of our life. God will break you on one side. Isn't that good enough, Lord? People can mount from this side. You're no good to me unless you're broken from all sides. And so God will do what God will do. He will break you. For his honor and for his glory. Now, as we continue to study Psalm 51, we're going to begin to understand something. Not just our need for brokenness, but the ways that God breaks us. And then the fruit of brokenness in our lives. But I'm hoping you're starting to understand a little bit why we need to pause. And we need to carefully look at what David did. How do you receive forgiveness for what's unforgivable? How do you find cleansing for the inexcusable? Well, guess what? You'll never find it so long as you hide it. And you will never find it unless you're willing to go through the process. Conviction that leads to confession confession that leads to cleansing, cleansing that will provide comfort, but make no mistake about it, David is going to have deep, deep scars from this. Perhaps you'll have deep scars from your transgression, but make no mistake about it. The Bible is true. If you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that this psalm is difficult. To have such a raw confession, to have such a raw perception, to have such a raw declaration, to make no excuses. And to embrace fully the consequences. It can be frightening and it can be terrifying. But what joy. What freedom. When we 
live in your grace and we wash in your mercy and we are cleansed in a fountain of blood. To know that you're deeply, totally, and completely satisfied with the sacrifice of David's son. And so, Lord, I pray for every man and every woman within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would begin to understand about conviction and confession, about cleansing and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.